So the word perfect does not, uh, it's not a very good description of the Rockies right now, okay? It's not. Whole other subject right there, but um, maybe before I die, they will win a World Series though, so. Um, The word perfect means flawless and without fault. Flawless and without fault. We use the word perfect in phrases like, it was the perfect storm. That kind of sounds like an oxymoron to me. I don't want to be in some storm, right? But it's the perfect storm. Or it was the perfect game. Speaking of baseball, if a pitcher throws a perfect game, it means that no batter ever reached first base or was ever on base through a hit, through a walk, or through an error, or getting hit by a pitch. No one ever reached base. We say the perfect marriage, right? The perfect couple. He's the perfect guy. She's the perfect girl. It was the perfect date. They're the perfect team. How about this one? The perfect church. Yeah. Billy Graham said, if you ever find the perfect church, he said, don't go to it because you'll ruin it. (laughs) That's the truth right there. There's no such thing. So um, in this series that we kicked off last week, Whosoever, we're looking at, from Romans to Revelation, the letters of the New Testament of what happened after the apostles went and preached the gospel to the known world. And we have these letters that Paul, the apostle, wrote about at least 13 of that we know for sure. And then Peter wrote two, John wrote uh, four, plus his gospel, and then Jesus' half-brothers James and Jude have letters that made it into the New Testament. And they were gathered together to help the church know how to walk with Jesus, to know what to believe and how to, to live out our faith. And so one of the Today we're going to look at one of Paul's letters to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians. Now, ironically, we have 1 and 2 Corinthians, but this is not Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 5, 9, he says, in my previous letter. So obviously he had written to them. We don't have that document anywhere, um, but this is his actual second letter. Corinth is a city still today in Greece, modern-day Greece. And at the time that this letter was written, at the time Paul started a church, Corinth was very, very strategically located for, for commerce. Um, you have in the north northeast, you have Athens, Greece. And you had to go through Corinth to get to Sparta. And so Corinth was a, a city with lots of luxury, pleasure, wealthy, but man, it was a filthy moral city. It was the Las Vegas strip on steroids, truthfully. It was, it was terrible. And um, they had temple worship to the sex goddess Aphrodite, and they had temple prostitutes, and that's how you worshiped, is you would go and, you know, just this immorality that was there. It was a fast, fast city. And in Acts chapter 18, Paul goes there, and he begins to preach the gospel like he he did in all of his cities in the synagogues, because the Jews were dispersed, as we see 
in, in the Old Testament and in the Hebrew Scriptures, and many of the Jews decided to stay in those cities and not go back to Israel when, when uh, most of Israel you know, went back after they were freed. And he says in his letter to them, he says, I came to you guys with fear and trembling. Well, this is a tough place to go preach the gospel, tough place to go and, and tell people, hey, this is not the kind of life that your creator has for you. He knew he wouldn't, that wouldn't be very welcomed. And in his letter, he's, he's gotten word that there was some bad stuff going on in the church. He says there, there were divisions in the church, lack of unity. There were disorders of all kinds of immorality. A guy was sleeping with his stepmom. They were getting hammered at communion. I mean, just all kinds of stuff that he was hearing about. And they had doctrinal questions. As you read through 1 Corinthians, it, after he gets through the divisions and the disorders, he begins to answer questions. 1 Corinthians 7, he says, now concerning what you asked about marriage. Chapter 8, now concerning food offered to idols. Chapter 12, now concerning spiritual gifts. Chapter 15, now concerning the resurrection. So he gives them answers to, to their doctrinal questions. But I believe in 1 Corinthians, as I was studying and praying this week, um, we get the answer to what is the church. Because that can be really confusing, especially for someone who doesn't have any church experience. Like, where do I go? Where do I start? Which church do I pick to go to? And I think the word church conjures up a lot of things for a lot of people that have had bad experiences with this thing called church. Let me read this to you. Chapter 1, 1 through 9. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sothenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, <clears throat> their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, <clears throat> that in everything you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ." who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. What's the church? What is the church? I'm going to give you a couple simple answers. First of all, the church is people, not a, not a building or an institution. The church Look to your left, look to your right. Go ahead. Look to your left, look to your right. Turn around. You're looking at the church. That's the church. You didn't, you didn't come to church today. You came to the church's building. You came to a church service. But you are the church. We are the church. We get caught up into those kind of phrases like, are you going to church? <laughs> uh, no, you're going to church service. You are the church. And I think we have to remind ourselves all the time of that. 
in verse 2, he said, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. To the church of God, which is at Corinth. When I think of church, I like to think of big C and little c. The big C church is every person who follows Jesus, past, present, and future, all over the world, is the church. That's the big C. We are, as a, at Novation, we are connected to the big church. But a, a local church like Novation is what I call a little C, or the folks next door, they're a little C. Harbor Church, whatever church you can think of, are all lo, uh, local expressions of the big church, of the, the big C. It's important that we remember that. When it says to the church at Corinth, what does that mean? Well, the word uh, church in Greek is the word ekklesia. And the word ek in Greek is to come forth or to be called out from. And lesia is assembly. So literally, we are a people called out from the system of this world and called in to the way of the kingdom of God, an assembly of called out ones. That's you. We're the ecclesia of Jesus. We've been called out of selfishness and power and, and all the things that the world is hungry for. We've been called to pursue life in the kingdom. We're the ecclesia of Jesus. Jesus said this. He said, for where two or three have gathered in my name, I'm there in their midst. So you don't have to come to the church building to be the church or to gather in his name. Where two or three are gathered, I'm right there in their midst. I think I read a lot of church history stuff, and I read a lot of the church fathers that that predate Constantine and the Roman Catholic Church. And the purity of the first three or four hundred years of the church, like, not that the, God's always had his people, always going to have his church, but there was something different about that. In, in around 350 AD, Constantine, who was the Roman emperor, had a vision of a cross. And he said, we're adopting Christianity as the religion of the Roman Empire. And I think it, it, it did taint the purity of the church because now it became, the church became meshed with power and politics and nationalism and, and you associate, you were born into Christendom rather than learning how to be a disciple of Jesus. You were born and baptized into it. And there are a lot of things that were done in the name of Jesus, like the Crusades. Go kill somebody who won't convert to Christianity. That doesn't sound like Jesus a whole lot to me, who said, love your enemies, do good to those. And yet, it got warped. And, and we, this institution of the church kind of, in some ways, put a little bit of a, of a black eye on Christianity that people couldn't see. And it still happens today. Like we've been talking about, people hear the word church and they might think stained glass or they might think this or that or whatever thought that comes into their mind. So it's, not, it's people, not an institution, and then it's not a, a building. Um, at the time, you know, that Paul would have written this, 
in Jerusalem, there was still a temple, the house of worship where the Jews would do sacrifice that represented worship for, for Israel for a long time. Paul tells the, the church at Corinth two things about them. In, in uh, chapter 3, he says corporately, he says, do you not know that you are the temple where God's spirit dwells? We collectively are the temple. Turn to someone next to you and say, you're the temple. Does that sound weird? But you're the temple. We together are the temple. And then in chapter 6, he tells them individually, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? He dwells in us. We are the building of the Spirit now. That's important. So the church is people, not a building or an institution. What is the church? The church is Christ's, not ours or anyone else's. Christy hit on that earlier. There's no church, no uh, movement or denomination that has a monopoly on the church. Though you would think, some people think, like, oh, my church is the best, you know, or we believe what, what's right, and, and we get into this disunity in the body of Christ, and it looks silly to the world. They're like, nah, you guys aren't even unified. So, But Jesus says this, I will build my church. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not stand against it. He takes responsibility for, for building his church. We don't build a church. We make disciples. That was the commission that Jesus gave to the disciples, and that has been handed down to us to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples and so on. In chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says, I hear of these divisions among you. And if you ever read the scriptures, Jesus and Paul were all about unity and that believers be of one mind, one heartbeat. And some of these people were saying, I'm of Paul. And then somebody else would say, I'm of Apollos. Well, I'm of Peter. I'm of Jesus, somebody even had the guts to say. Paul's saying, what? Like, you don't follow me. You don't have divisions amongst each other. It's about Jesus. And then he goes on to say, he says, is Christ divided in verse 13 of chapter 1? Is Christ divided? And it's no wonder when we do all these divisive stuff and elevate something over somebody else or whatever within the church, people that, that are interested or maybe seeking a little bit are like, where do I go? Like, what camp really is right? Where, where should I, I land? It's important that you know this. In Christianity, there are three main branches of Christianity. You have Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestant. And most Protestants, especially evangelicals, have no clue about the other, the other uh, branches of Christianity. But the Roman Catholic Church obviously came from when Constantine adopted uh, Christianity as the religion of the Roman Empire. Well, when the Roman Empire crumbled, the church stayed going and, and stayed doing what it was doing until 1045 AD. The Eastern Orthodox Church broke off from the Roman Catholic Church over one little word in the Nicene Creed, over one word. They said, ah, we're not going that way. So then you 
the Eastern Orthodox Church looks an awful lot, lot like the Roman Catholic Church, but has some different beliefs. But, you know, you have Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, and so forth. Then you have this word called Protestant. And the, the word Protestant came out of the Reformation in the 1500s when names like Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King Jr., but Martin Luther, you hear of Lutheran churches, right? A guy named John Calvin in France, and then a guy named John Knox in Scotland. And the, the word Protestant means to protest. I'm not protesting the Catholic Church, and I don't think any of us are protesting that. So I don't really love that word, but that's what it means. So when, it, when you get into uh, Protestant churches that were birthed out of the, the Reformation, there's numerous denominations, it, numerous. And denominations are usually m- movements of churches that disagreed over a secondary issue of some sort. And the Apostles' Creed is our statement of faith at Novation. The, the Apostles' Creed are the non-negotiable things, beliefs, doctrines that unite all Christians together if we embrace that. Now, a, a secondary issue could be mode of baptism. What do you believe about the spiritual gifts? Uh, worship, church government. They're important things, but for us, they're not worth dividing over, yet it's happened, you know, for hundreds of years of, of divisions. You know, if you don't baptize sprinkle babies rather than fully immerse, you know, people when they're older, then there was a movement. That's where you get your Baptist churches from. It was all about how do we baptize people. I just looked this up. And within the Protestant uh, branch of Christianity, you have... Anglican, Baptist, within Baptist, Southern Baptist, Baptist General Conference, American Baptist, and there's about 12. Brethren, Christian Missions Alliance, Episcopal, Evangelical Free, Lutheran, uh, Missouri Synod Lutheran, Wisconsin Synod, Evangelical Lutheran, Mennonite, Methodist, Presbyterian, Quaker, United Church of Christ, Wesleyan, non-denominational, just getting started, Pentecostal, Charismatic, Assemblies of God, Church of God, Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, and so on and so on and so on. Whew, I'm out of breath. Think of somebody going, like, there's so much. And I'm not saying any of that's wrong. Please don't hear that. That's pretty, could be pretty confusing for somebody to know, well, I just want to know this guy named Jesus. And I'm thankful we're non-denominational. Because we can major on the majors in, in, in this part of who we are and know that we don't got it all figured out. We don't have the be-all, end-all. We say it all the time. We're an imperfect church following a perfect Savior. So what unites us is Jesus. It's apostolic teaching. It's the Apostles' Creed. There's no denomination or movement that has a handle on who's in or who's out. It's His church. We get to be part of it. I got to tell this story. Not on my notes. I have a pastor friend. I've told this story before, but he, uh, he had a, he, 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 the Jesus Revolution movie that some of you have seen. He grew up in that and became a Christian. And he lived in a commune. And he said they had a pastor named Pastor Lizelle. And Pastor Lizelle was a no-nonsense guy. He loved Jesus, but he was going to 
help you follow Jesus. And he said he'd be praying and he'd be like, uh, you know, don't look down. Jesus is up there, not down there. I need more amens, more hallelujahs. <laughs> it's like coaching him how to pray. And uh, he said one time there was a guest preacher and the guest preacher, uh, Pastor Lizelle would be in like a chair back there. And he started, the guy that was preaching started hammering on the church. And he was like, oh, the church doesn't this and da, da, da. And he said he heard from the background, Pastor Lizelle was like, hey, Jesus loves the church. Leave the church alone. And then he, he did it again. He goes, uh, Jesus loves the church. Leave the church alone. He did it one more time. And Pastor Lizelle got up and grabbed his mic and said, I'm going to have you sit down. Jesus loves the church. And uh, we're not going to talk bad about his church. Turn in your hymnal to Jesus loves the church hymn or whatever. So I love that. I keep hearing that. Jesus loves the church. Leave the church alone. He does. We're his bride, his family. We, he's our brother. I mean, he's, we're, we're connected to Jesus. All right, what is the church? The church is a portrait of his grace. A portrait of his grace. It's a, it's a portrait that Jesus has been painting for 2,000 years of grace. And I look around this room, there's grace. You guys are portraits. I'm a portrait of his amazing grace. The church is a hospital for broken people. It's a hospital for people that are broken and been beat up by life, whether self-inflicted or not. The church is, is that safe place where people can find grace and mercy and healing. Sadly, people don't always find that. And often when people blow it or, or get, you know, do something wrong, the church is the last place they want to be because they think they're going to get judged or feel guilty, and it's sad that that's where people are at when we can come around each other. But the church is not only a hospital for broken people, the church is also a training ground to teach people how to live in the kingdom of God. So it's twofold. It's hospital and it's also training to live in the kingdom of God, to be in this world but not of the world. I'm going to read what he said again. He said, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as a testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He says this before He rebukes them. Think about that. I told you there was some heinous stuff going on. Sleeping with stepmom. Getting hammered at communion. Uh, all kinds of stuff, divisions and disorders. But he starts out with who they are in Jesus. He starts out with grace. He start, starts out with grace. I think that this is an example for us, if you're a parent or anybody that ever has to bring correction, discipline or restoration to somebody's life, start out with who they are in Jesus. 
then bring correction, and then give them more grace. Start with grace, end with grace. That's so important in your, if you're parenting that you, that you correct with, through grace, that you start with grace and you end with grace. I think that process begins with our identity in Christ. And then lastly, what is the church? The church is imperfect people being transformed by a perfect Savior. Paul told them in verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. When I think about that, like for me as a, as a pastor, um, you know, sometimes I get around people, I don't want them to know what I do for a living until I have to share with them because then they, they get weird on me, like, and get all holy and um, stop cussing or whatever. And that's fine. But it's like, I'm just a dude, man. I'm, I am, uh, you know, pastors are not up here. I like to say this a lot that, um, Jesus is the shepherd of Novation Church. I'm not, he's the shepherd. I'm maybe the lead sheep where as a fellow sheep, I'm like, Hey, the shepherd's going this way, guys. Let's, let's follow him. Like that's, that's how I see my role. And it's important that we don't, don't ever elevate leaders and pastors like they're somehow perfect. I know my flaws. Ask my wife. Ask my family. Um, hey, watch out now. <laughs> Leave the church alone. Leave the pastor alone. Stick to preaching. That was perfect comedic timing there. But when you think about the perfect church, Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47 is like a portrait of a perfect church. After Peter preaches the gospel and thousands of people come to, to Jesus on the day of Pentecost, says that the, they gave, the early church gave themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to the breaking of bread, and to fellowship. And that um, no one lacked anything. The church shared all their stuff together and that they had... Their community had impact on the world around them, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Yet by just a few chapters later in Acts 6, reality steps in on the perfect church. And you have uh, widows complaining that they weren't getting fed first. Why are they getting fed first? And selfishness and all that shows up the reality of our flaws, even as followers of Jesus, that we're in process of being transformed. A perfect church would need perfect people of which there are none. Amen? There are no perfect people, so there's never going to be a perfect church. People are going to mess up. People are going to blow it. We're going to have differences. But I always say this, man, let's at our little local church here called Novation, let's set the bar so low for the reality that you're going to be offended, you're going to, someone's going to rub you wrong, something's going to happen, someone's going to mess up. But let's set the bar so high of forgiveness and overlooking and learn how to overlook one another's faults that we're good at that. That bar is high. You, when you're part of a church, you will get offended. Somebody's going to rub you wrong. And it's like in life, you can choose your friends, but you don't get to choose your family. 
And when it comes to his family, he's chosen this family to be, to be together. I, uh, I found a poem that I want to read to you. And it's by unknown, so I took the liberty of changing some of the words. So whoever originally wrote this, it was kind of a little bit of archaic language. But I really liked it. It says this. No perfect church I think that I shall never see. A church that's all it ought to be. A church whose people never stray beyond the straight and narrow way. A church that has no empty chairs where all the people share what's theirs. A church whose people always pray and come to service each Sunday. Such perfect churches there may be, but none of them are known to me. But still we'll work and pray and plan to make our own the best we can. Stand up together. I love that Jesus takes responsibility for his church because we're in good care. He's the great shepherd. And he loves you infinitely. Today, if you're struggling a little bit with identity or maybe you've had a bad week, maybe you made bad choices, I don't know. He loves you. His grace is enough. And like Paul told the church at Corinth, who they were in Christ before he corrected them. We've got to always know that's the disposition of our Heavenly Father. He loves us too much to let us continue making bad choices. So He's going to allow consequences. He's going to allow things. But those things are good. And He loves us with an infinite, eternal love and nothing can change that. And nothing can separate you from the love of God that's found in Jesus. Nothing. Again, I said this last week. Well, some people say, well, I can. No, you can't. You don't have the ability to change God's disposition towards you, His love for you. You can run from Him. You can try to hide from Him, but that doesn't mean He's not going to still love you. If you've never agreed with Jesus about who he is that he's Lord he's Savior because we don't make him Lord we don't make him Savior we agree with him Um, do that today do it every day wake up and say Lord I agree you are Lord and Savior and I want to follow you today take my will take my will and align my will with your will every day say Lord challenge my will and align me with your will so that I walk in your ways and enjoy who you are. I know some folks, sometimes you're walking with Jesus for, you've been walking with Jesus for a long time and you can get to a place where maybe your relationship feels stale, feels stagnant. He hasn't gone anywhere. He hasn't gone anywhere. And he wants to infuse into each one of us fresh life, a fresh attitude, a fresh countenance that spills out over into your families, to your workplace, to your community, and to live in the joy of the Lord as our strength. So I want to pray for that. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the hope 
that we have because of him. God, I pray for everyone in here, Lord, that you would just fall afresh upon us, infuse your life, Lord. Help us to to know how to access what you've already given us, that you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. We, We believe and we trust. We're banking on you, Jesus. We're banking on the reality that you are the resurrection and the life. That's our hope. So Lord, as we go from being together this morning, Lord, help us to walk out being the church. We've been with the church today. Now help us to go out and be the church in this this world that is very confused and chaotic. Lord, we love you and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.